Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Corbell, Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. For this episode, I'm joined by Andy Pitts, an independent consultant for Interactive Investor. Later, both myself and Andy will be putting questions to Sam Mort, manager of the Fidelity European Values Investment Trust and also the Fidelity European Fund. Then, at the end of the podcast, Theodore Diloff, fund analyst at Interactive Investor, will name his fund of the week from the Super 60 list of investments. As ever, we start off with the latest fund news and developments. The first item I wanted to cover is the news that one of the most experienced and respected fund managers investing in Asian equities has announced he'll retire next year. Matthew Dobbs, who manages various funds for Schroders, including the Schroder Asian Alpha Plus Fund and Schroder Asia Pacific Investment Trust, will be handing over his responsibilities to other internal fund managers at Schroders. It looks from the outside a well-thought-through succession plan, as the managers taking over from Dobbs have plenty of experience under their belts. Dobbs joins three other fund manager veterans in announcing retirement plans. In recent months, Marlborough's Giles Hargreave, Federated Hermes's Gary Greenberg, and Charles Plowden of the Monks Investment Trust have announced succession plans. In light of this, I want to get your thoughts, Andy, on how much emphasis private investors should place on experience when it comes to buying funds. Well, Carl, I think that having an experienced fund manager investing on your behalf can be a real benefit for private investors. You only need to look at the performance numbers generated by high-profile managers like James Anderson, who's been involved in managing Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust since 2000. But you could also argue that managers like Anderson are very good at picking the right companies in areas of economic activity and growth that are doing very well and benefiting from long-term trends. So in his case, it's predominantly new technologies and healthcare which, while also being mindful of the ethos of his employer, Bailey Gifford, which looks to back companies engaged in tangible, sustainable activities, which should mean those companies grow and prosper. So to that end, had you invested £1,000 in 2000 in Scottish mortgage, it would be worth around £14,000 today. But it's worth looking at a few other fund managers with, uh, shall we say, oodles of experience. If you take Richard Buxton, who's been investing in UK equities for more than 30 years, I've run his performance numbers on the funds he has managed since 2002 via the fund manager fact sheets, which are provided by data specialist FE. Now, since then, since 2002, he's generated a return on his funds of 251%, and that compares with a peer group average of 200%. So as FE notes, overall performing better than the peer group composite. However, over a long track record, the manager has underperformed the peer group more often than not, FE says. But FE also states that stock picking has made a contribution to results which have not been particularly exposed to falling markets. And for me, that comment about the performance of Buxton's Buxton's performance not being particularly exposed to falling markets is indicative of how a fund manager with lots of experience can be helpful. That's because the new generation of fund managers have not really had to cope with the real ramifications of a long-lasting bear market. You could also argue that experience does not count for as much as it once did in today's market conditions, I would say. And by that, I mean the decisions made by fund managers don't carry as much weight as they once did 
because the direction of markets themselves are increasingly influenced by central banks rather than investors making active decisions based on the fundamental attractions or weaknesses of a company's shares or bonds. But finally, it's worth pointing out that longevity as a fund manager does not always result in market-beating returns. Anthony Bolton, for example, is best remembered for the highly successful UK equity funds he ran for Fidelity. He had periods of underperformance, most notably when the UK market got ahead of itself as it did in the late 1990s. And there are lots of funds run by very experienced fund managers that have not performed well, particularly those that pursue a value approach. Such funds have performed well in the past, but are generally lagging the market these days although that doesn't mean this approach is no longer valid. And then, of course, there's the Neil Woodford scandal. Having built up a reputation as an excellent fund manager at Invesco Perpetual for around 25 years, that did not do a great deal for the long-term wealth of investors who backed the UK equity income funds he launched under his own name back in 2014. And really, the less said about the experience of investors in the Woodford Patient Capital Investment Trust, the better. In the case of um, younger fund managers, for example, those at the start of fund management careers in terms of running money, obviously before they become a co or deputy or even or a lead manager, they'll have probably been an analyst for several years, you know, at a fund management firm. But in terms of when they're like in the hot seat, how, how long a track record do you think private investors should sort of wait for before um, considering investing? Well, I don't think there's an ideal track record for new fund managers in terms of assessing their credentials. But generally, it's good to be able to see at least three years performance for a new fund manager, either solely or as part of a team. Slightly equivocal about this question, because much depends on a number of other factors. You know, They include assessing whether a newly promoted fund manager, as you say, has been part of a wider team. And if so, for how long? And as you also say, they may have worked as an analyst before being promoted to fund manager status. For example, Fidelity is famous for promoting fund managers from the ranks of their analyst desks. And those who have displayed a strong discipline, a strong discipline and fundamental company analysis often go on to be among the best fund managers. So another example is Terry Smith at Fundsmith Equity. Uh, he didn't have a history as an actual fund manager before he launched Fundsmith Equity, but he had been a very good and outspoken company analyst earlier in his career. But what Smith has successfully done is to clearly articulate an investment process. This has so far proven to be highly successful, but there are other fund managers who also follow an ethos or processes that have not recently been that profitable, such as a focus on value investing. Now, that doesn't mean the process is not a valid one, but having a fund manager who is able to articulate an investment process and why it is or is not profitable is just as important as the experience of the fund manager themselves, in my opinion. As you mentioned there, Andy, um, obviously it's very important to bear in mind the style of the funds, value funds, those that those fund managers that um, invest in um, shares that they believe to be undervalued have notably underperformed as an investment style for a good decade now versus growth and quality stocks. We recently on the Interactive Investor uh, website covered comments made by Hugh Sargent, the manager of River and Mercantile UK Recovery Fund, which is a member of the Interactive Investor Super 60 list. Andy, in the commentary, Hugh argued that, in his opinion, conditions are perfect for a revival of out of favour value stocks. Could you explain why he thinks that's the case? Yeah, I mean, before I do that, Carl, there's actually quite a nice quote from uh, Hugh Sargent supporting his case for a renaissance in value investing, if you don't mind me repeating it. He says, 
If you were a person from Mars and all you had was a deep set of data on factor returns and economic and profit cycles over the last 100 years since proper equity markets began, then if you set yourself 10 key tests on whether now was the time to invest in value, recovery and multi-cap stocks, the answer to all those key tests would be very supportive. So it's worth asking, what are the 10 key tests to which the answer is yes? I won't go through all of them, but here's a flavor. He asks, are we at the cyclical low point for the relative value of value stocks? The answer is yes. Have smaller companies underperformed and are they lowly valued? He says yes. Are absolute valuations for value stocks compelling? Yes. Is the global economy cyclically depressed? Definitely yes. And are corporate profits depressed? Well, yes, again, is global economic policy stimulative? Well, central banks and governments have been chucking money at the COVID-19 problem. So the answer to that is yes. And are value stocks unloved? Well, the answer to that is also a resounding yes. Now, you could argue that the, the yes answer to some of these questions has been the case for some time now. But there's evidence that the much-awaited renaissance is starting to happen. There's been a marked improvement in performance of such funds in recent months. But Sargent also recognises it could still be a long road back because fears of a second wave of COVID-19 means investors are just not as confident in a recovery. Well, time will tell with that one. We're now moving on to the next part of the podcast in which myself and Andy are joined by Sam Morse. We'll be focusing the interview on the Investment Trust, Sam Managers, Fidelity European Values. Sam, thank you for your time today. Andy, would you like to kick off with the first question? Yes, Sam. Um, The name Fidelity European Values suggests that you pursue a value-based investment strategy, but a quick glance at the portfolio's top holdings suggests more of a quality growth approach. Could you explain your investment strategy in a bit more detail? Good morning, Festival, to both of you. My investment strategy is probably best summarised as dividend growth at a reasonable or, or perhaps even an attractive price. Now, why do I focus on dividend growth? Well, there's a ton of evidence that shows that companies which consistently grow their dividends do consistently outperform. Now, unfortunately, in terms of dividend growth, the past is not necessarily a guide to the future. So being able to identify those companies that will be able to grow their dividends over the next three to five years is is critical. And in that respect, I really have three sort of key criteria to help me determine the ability of the company to grow its dividend going forward. First, positive fundamentals. Generally, I'm investing in proven business models, companies that have a good track record in terms of sales, earnings, cash flow and dividend growth. Secondly, I like companies that have a strong balance sheet and obviously you can borrow to pay dividends, but I certainly don't want to invest in any companies where the financial leverage could jeopardise the ability of the company to pay its dividend going forward. And finally, I prefer companies that have a good track record in terms of cash generation because, you know, I've tended to find over time that companies that, that do generate cash consistently are also able to grow their dividends consistently. And finally, and very importantly, it's not dividend growth at any price. I mean, valuation is important to me. But as you say, it's not really a traditional value approach, uh, which is why the board have actually decided that the name of the trust will be changed to the Fidelity European Trust. So we'll be actually be dropping the uh, the values part of the name. 
although actually uh, currently that's a little bit delayed, um, like a lot of things this year by the pandemic. In terms of your focus on dividend growth, in which you look for companies with the ability to grow dividends sustainably over a three to five year time frame, how challenging is, um, is that to assess at the moment, given the huge number of dividend cuts and suspensions that have taken place in response to COVID-19? Yeah, I, I mean, Carl, it is, it is certainly is challenging at the moment. Dividends have actually proven less resilient than earnings in this crisis, which is unusual. But having said that, there have been many different reasons for that, you know, quite well highlighted in the press. I mean, first of all, regulatory, you know, a number of banks have uh, had to suspend dividends really at the request of the European regulator, not because they're not able to pay dividends at the current point in time. Uh, and politically speaking, you know, in France, um, there's been a lot of pressure on companies, even very strong companies like L'Oreal and LVMH, um, not to grow dividends or not pay out uh, attractive dividends to shareholders. And one or two companies in their wisdom have probably followed that advice. And then obviously, as you say, I mean, just fundamentally, there are quite a lot of companies that have chosen to change their dividend policy because they're concerned about liquidity you know, in an environment, certainly during the lockdowns, where sales were quite often, you know, zero. So I think each case really has to be looked at, you know, on a case-by-case basis. And a view has to be taken regarding the sort of longer-term dividend outlook for each company and how that compares with, the, you know, the, the, the valuation, the price you're being asked to pay for that company. I mean, I have to say that, you know, obviously the portfolio has been affected like the market. We've had a number of companies that have changed their dividend policy. Uh, And my default position is that I will continue generally to be pretty wary of companies uh, that have changed their policy negatively or cut their dividends. Uh, And some of these holdings have been reduced um, and and some will actually be sold. I tend to do this rather carefully and very much depending on the price level. You know, I've often said that dividend growth and companies' dividend policies are sort of my burning torch in navigating murky markets. But I think in these markets, which are particularly dark, it's probably more of a flickering candle. But, you know, I think that's still better than no light at all. Focusing on dividends and dividend policies and dividend growth, even in this challenging environment, remains extremely important. In spite of your sort of general wariness about dividends and dividend policies at individual companies, the trust gearing of around 7%, I think, at the last time I looked, suggests that you're pretty confident about prospects for the trust. How does that current level of gearing compare with gearing levels over the medium term? Yeah, it's a good question. I think one of the great advantages of an investment trust versus other investment vehicles is obviously the ability to gear. Uh, and over the fullness of the cycle, you know, that can add a lot of value to shareholders, you know, because generally share prices do move up. I mean, I think one of my regrets really during my tenure on this fund is that, you know, the gearing level has been relatively low, um, averaging around sort of 5% during my tenure, because there always seemed to be something to worry about during that period, as you can imagine from the sort of negative headlines about Europe with the Eurozone crisis, uh, you know, all sorts of other stuff going on. Now, I think there is an argument that that gearing, level of gearing should structurally be higher uh, in the next stock, stock market cycle. When share prices fell very heavily in March, I did add to the gearing. So we moved up from about a 4% level to about an 8% level. But then I paused because 
you know, I felt that stock prices had recovered much faster than I expected uh, and actually gone a bit further than I expected. You know, we're, we're back to sort of all-time highs in the States and, you know, in Europe, not far off that. Given what's going on in the economy at large, you know, that means that the market now is, is really quite fully valued. I'm sort of caught a little bit here between uh, the strategy and the tactics. And my strategy is really to take the gearing to a, to a higher level for the next stock market cycle. But tactically, I think uh, it, it pays to pause at this point in time. Now, if, if we do see some sort of pullback, in, as we often do in the fall, then you know, I might take advantage of that to push it to a, to a higher level. Um, perhaps, you know, we see a resurgence of the virus leading to new lockdowns. You mentioned there's some that markets are potentially fully valued, but um, obviously Europe compared to other regions, particularly uh, the US, is cheaper on, pre- on all the valuation metrics that um, investors can look at. I mean, this has been an argument for a number of years now. Um, a lot of commentators have suggested that at some point there might be a rotation out of the famous US tech names into European stocks. Do you envisage that this may happen at some point? To be honest, Carl, I'm a little bit sceptical of this argument. I think a lot of the difference or the apparent difference in valuation between different regions is down to sort of differences in structure in terms of, you know, sectoral makeup. And as you mentioned, you know, tech is very big in the US, you know, and these are fast-growing, high-return companies that deserve to be on, you know, relatively high multiples. Whereas tech is a very small sector in in Europe, so that you know that can make a, a a big difference in the aggregate rating. You know, and then accounting can also obviously make quite a difference in terms of you know if you're measuring price to earnings ratios across markets. You know, I'm I'm really sort of skeptical of the argument also because you know I work at Fidelity and we've got armies of analysts, as you know, global analysts looking for these valuation anomalies across geographies in the larger companies in the larger sectors and those anomalies are sort of arbitraged away really quite quickly so uh, i'm a bit skeptical of the argument that europe in aggregate is cheap relative to other regions and particularly the us i think it is about structural differences but having said that i think europe is you know there is a case for europe in that is sort of a high beta play on global growth so I think if you're positive about economic recovery, then I think that's a, a, something going in, in favour of investing in Europe relative to other regions. Uh, and also perhaps the strength of the euro. You know, I think there has been evidence recently that the EU is beginning to get its act together again, uh, you know, what with the recovery fund, etc. And obviously in the US, with rates being taken lower, the yield argument for the dollar is a bit less strong. So, you know, the euro, in a sense, have been, has been a beneficiary of this. And, and so the combination of, uh, you know, if you believe in economic recovery and if you believe that the euro will still stay strong, then I think you can believe uh, or can get more excited about the prospects for European stock markets. As you probably remember, Carl, I'm, I'm always a little bit cautious <laughs> about the outlook for markets generally. Um, so maybe I'm not the best person to talk to about this, but I think there is a growing pace for investing in, in, in the European stock market. So Sam, finally, you mentioned that you might consider raising the gearing on the trust in the autumn if uh, there's new lockdown measures uh, imposed across Europe. But 
there has recently been a resurgence of COVID-19 infections across Europe in the holiday season, and particularly in France, Germany and Spain. Have you had to consider changing any of your portfolio holdings in light of that? Generally, it certainly makes me feel a little bit cautious. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I think we may well get a pullback moving into into the fall um, because I think a number of companies and, and, and probably investors too are, are banking, you know, on a second half recovery. I think it makes sense, you know, even more sense really now to continue to focus on the company's strength of their balance sheets and, you know, their liquidity. Because these sorts of companies will be able to survive uh, another lockdown and, and indeed actually have the flexibility to take advantage in a more difficult economic environment by being able to continue to invest in their business and perhaps do M&A at the right time in the cycle. And that flexibility often makes these stocks a bit more expensive, um, the less flexible peers. But I think that premium is worth paying in my opinion, especially in times like this that are so volatile and so probably are likely to continue to be so uncertain. Thank you for your time, Sam. Very nice to chat to you. For the final part of the podcast, I am joined by Theodore Diloff, fund analyst at Interactive Investor, to name his Super 60 fund pick for this episode. Theodore, what have you chosen? Hi, Kyle. My pick for today's edition is Artemis Area Smaller Companies Fund, which has been quite popular with investors looking to gain exposure to the smaller cap area of the US market due to it being one of the standout active funds that invest in the region. I think that despite concerns about growth and valuations, the US market is difficult for individual investors to ignore. Many do not realize uh, that the US smaller companies market is actually huge and offers much wider opportunities than the UK market, for example. The fund is run by the highly regarded manager Cormac Weldon, who is also the head of US equities at Artemis and has excellent track record of delivering above market returns throughout different market cycles. His investment process targets quality businesses that can grow their earnings at all market conditions and have predictable cash flows. So what does the fund invest in? The combination of individual company research and macroeconomic analysis results in a high conviction portfolio of roughly about 40 to 60 stocks uh, with a market value mostly below $10 billion. On a sector level, the fund has sizable position of 21% in industrials, followed by similar weightings in consumer goods, financials, healthcare, consumer services, and technology. Its largest holding is Pool Corporation, which distributes the chemicals and parts used to maintain residential swimming pools. What makes the um, the fund special and stand out from the crowd? Well, in my view, uh, one of the best features of this fund is consistency. Comac uses less aggressive approach, which results in better risk-adjusted returns over both short and long term. The fund's investment process has also proved to be a very efficient one, with the strategy delivering 131% total return over five years, compared to 66% for the Russell 2000 benchmark. Despite the market shock earlier this year, the strategy delivered over 8% year-to-date against a negative return of minus 6.5% for the index. And what sort of investors will it particularly suit? Both balanced and more adventurous uh, investors with longer-term investment horizon. Due to its unconstrained and concentrated nature, the fund's return profile could be more volatile than the market, which makes it a high-risk option. And therefore, I think this strategy could be best utilized as a satellite holding within a well-diversified portfolio. 
Thank you, Theodore. Thanks again to our guests for this episode, Sam Morse, and thanks to my co-host for this episode, Andy Pitts. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.